I think this morning we had the ministry time before the message. So I'm just going to give the message that went with the ministry time. Is that okay? And, uh, you know, it's amazing the kind of fears that people have. And I came across this one the other day, lutrophobia. It's the fear of otters. <laughs> or this one, plutophobia. Fear of wealth. Really? More realistically, um, some of you have a fear of spiders. A height of those online, by the way, too. And uh, someone in particular who knows they have a fear of spiders, I'm right here talking to you too. All right, so the good news and the bad news on spiders, let's just check it out. This is the good news. You are more likely to be killed by a champagne cork than a venomous spider. <sighs> the bad news. During your life, you will eat an average of 70 insects and 10 spiders while sleeping. There we are. All right. Just to help you now with your fears and your courage, just going to look at this quote from David Ben-Gurion. Now, he was Prime Minister of Israel, and uh, he's been actually voted the, the second most um, important Israeli, or greatest Israeli of all time. And some of you who have been to Israel would have flown into David Ben-Gurion Airport. He said this, and I think it's really interesting. Courage is a special kind of knowledge. It's the knowledge of how to fear what ought to be feared and how not to fear what ought not to be feared. From this knowledge comes an inner strength that inspires us to push on in the face of difficulty. What can seem impossible is often possible with courage. I like that. The knowledge of how to fear what ought to be feared and how not to fear what ought not to be feared. Jesus spoke quite a lot about that. The Bible speaks about it. Well, I don't know about you, but lately I've been wrestling with something and I don't think I'm alone in this. What I'm seeing, and probably you are too, is an incre increasingly a challenging of and a rejection of an intolerance of and now a growing despising of Christian values. Values that for most of my life have been foundational to our society. That's the way I grew up. Majority of people embraced those values. Our government actually embraced those. But as I thought more about it, I thought actually my bigger wrestle, my wrestle isn't so much with the changes per se, it's with something on the inside within me. It's this wrestle with intimidation. I sense it pressing in on me, and I sense my courage is lacking. And it's also with the uncertainty of how to know, uh, to know how to speak up boldly, lovingly, and wisely, and represent the heart of our Father. And then I realized I really wasn't alone, um, because Nate Johnson, a prophet, um, had a word published on the Elijah list this week. He said this, this is a little part of it. 
the spirit of intimidation is trying to surround the body of Christ. It's like the surround sound system of chatter and noise that's trying to bait the body of Christ into becoming part of its symphony. He talked about the surround sound system of social media, news media, divisive talk, add in politics and stuff, all seeking to muzzle and silence the church. And the same week, I, I had a message from, not a personal message to me, um, Rick Joyner, and talking about the same kind of thing. But you know, the enemy has always sought to silence the church of God, to shut down the kingdom. This is not new. And so what I want to talk about today is cultivating a courage culture. And we're going to look at a story um, in the Old Testament, and it's not actually David and Goliath, but it does involve the Philistines. So this is Jonathan and his armor bearer as they attack the Philistine outpost. So a bit of background, first of all. We go back to Moses. You know, Moses took the Israelites out of, lovely to see you, Helen, um, took the Israelites out of Egypt and through the uh, wilderness. Uh, Moses died. Joshua then took them into the promised land, won a whole lot of battles. He died. Judges came along, and one after the other. One was called Deborah. Deborah's arise. There's a few in this church. And um, a number of judges. And then the people said, oh, we want a king. Everybody else around us has got a king. We want a king. So God said, well, if that's what you really want. And they gave him King Saul, who wasn't too bad to start with, but um, didn't have a good ending. So here we have, at this point in time, Saul is king of the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel has had all these promises from God of provision and peace and favor, and on it goes. And some of those blessings have been obtained, but there's a lot more on offer. The trouble is, it doesn't come easy. The Philistines are the problem once again. This is before David and Goliath. They are determined to keep Israel weak and powerless and far short of their destiny. And they're causing havoc. What they're doing is sending out raiding parties and intimidating, there's that word again, the Israelites. And so they've confiscated all the weapons except for King Saul and his son Jonathan have a sword each and maybe a spear. Philistines, on the other hand, have got 3,000 chariots and soldiers as numerous as the grains of sand. The Philistines are controlling this narrow pass through a gorge, steep cliffs either side, and on the other side is more of the promised land. But they're not letting the Israelites through. These Philistines, and, and Glenn talked about this this morning, the Philistines represent an assault from hell. They represent the agenda of the enemy. So all those things like we mentioned this morning, disease, poverty, oppression, depression, confusion, identity confusion, and on the list goes. All these things, anxiety, self-hatred, 
It's part of the Philistine attack. And the Philistines don't exist as a race anymore, but the principalities and powers that empowered them are still relevant and active in this world. And you know what? The enemy seeks to control the pass into our promised land. And he uses the same tactics. Unbelief, fear, and intimidation at the top of the list. It hasn't changed. And he tries to take away our weapons. You think of the word of God has been shut out of school, shut out of government, prayer. That's not so much the problem. The problem is when the people of God don't use their weapons of the word of God and prayer, of testimonies, of our history with God. You know, soldiers um, are trained to assemble and disassemble their weapons. They do it so many times they could do it in the dark. We need to be able to use our weapons in the dark. We need to be able to pull them out and use them. So our destiny is on the other side of a war, actually. You've heard about the woke culture. Woke this, woke that, they're woke, she's woke, they're woke, all the rest of it. You know, it wasn't until 2017 that a definition was added to the dictionary that says this. Aware of and actively attentive to important facts and issues, especially of racial and social justice. So it refers to being well-informed around uh, issues that are maybe political or cultural, particularly with marginalised communities. Basically, it describes someone who's woken up to the issues of justice. So that includes everybody in this room, I would hope. And in both the Old and New Testament, we see that issues of justice were very much on God's heart. This is not a new thing. God talked about the widows, the orphans, the foreigners. We saw Jesus with the lepers, the tax collectors, the Samaritans, the women, slaves, marginalised communities. And through the centuries, if you look at it, it's the church, it's believers that have woken culture to the issues of the day. From um, abolishing slave trade through to rescuing children from sex trafficking. From the Salvation Army to... World Vision and tons of Hagar, all these other organisations. It is the church that has been the most woke of all. And we need to continue to stay on the front foot for that. But that's woke in that sense because the word has now been hijacked. That's the word, Ruth. And it's been sloganised to be inherently connected to the liberal left. And rather than confronting racial inequality or other cultural issues through discussion, debate, or reasonable protest, woke people now aim to intimidate, there it is again, their detractors into silence. And couple that with speeches of hate and the forcing of their liberal ideologies on others is what sums up the woke culture of today. Barack Obama said this just recently, I sense among certain young people on social media that the way of making change is to be as judgmental as possible about 
other people. And this is what your young people are being fed. And all of that, of course, leads to cancel culture. This phenomenon in which those who are deemed to have acted or spoken in an unacceptable manner, determined by who, are ostracised, boycotted or shunned. So we have this mass withdrawal of public support for a company, for a public figure or whatever, because they've done things deemed not culturally acceptable. To who? I was just um, saw yesterday that um, Facebook confesses to suppressing the voice of worship leader Sean Foot. He said, my profile is hidden and the algorithm buries my posts. So on it goes. And of course, this cancel culture is fueled by the progressive, the politically progressive social media, read liberal social media, cancelling a person's voice, cancelling their reputation, cancelling their job. And someone said this recently, the cancel culture has spun out of control and become a senseless form of media mob rule. And of course, we saw that in Auckland very recently. But the fact is that they're a minority and the majority might be silent because it's being intimidated, but the majority will stand up again. And the truth is that woke and cancel culture are actually making people more intolerant, doing the very reverse of what they say they're doing. So let's get back into our story because we want to pick up some clues of how to deal with this intimidation. So if we just check out um, chapter 13, first of all, in verse 6, uh, we read that when the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among rocks and pits and cisterns. <laughs> and the troops were quaking with fear. So where's their leader? Where's the king? Chapter 14, verse 2. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. Oh, how sweet. In the shade of a tree. Now, Migron means cast down. At this point, Saul was very cast down. He actually had the pip because God had sent Samuel the prophet to tell him off. And uh, on top of that, he didn't know what to do in the situation he was in. So he was sitting there doing nothing. He was kind of hoping God would do something. And God would as soon as somebody would believe him and go into action. So all Saul's mind was filled with is these big, scary Philistines. And here's Jonathan. Jonathan sees the same situation, the same intimidation, the same threats, all of that, but his focus is on what God has promised. Just like Glenn said with David, he had a vision for what his God could do. And in Jonathan's heart is this vision for his tribe, for his nation, for the next generation, and he's prepared to risk for that. He knows that his God is faithful and will keep his promises. And you know, courageous faith is evidence not when everything's going well. We can all do that kind of faith. It's when things are hard-pressed. Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians 1, I think it is. Hard-pressed when life's not going well, 
when life's knocking us, when we're feeling intimidated or discouraged, and when circumstances there will try and tell us that God doesn't exist, or if he does, he doesn't really care about you, about me. And we all have a choice in that situation when hard-pressed, we either give in to discouragement and do what the, a lot of people of the Israelites did, was hide in their caves and and uh, in the places of gloom and shake with fear. Or we can choose even a little bit to believe in God's promises and stand up and do something, at least something. This quote from Bob Gass, he, uh, he's passed away. He was the writer of World for, Word for Today. He said, without courage, you're not living. You're hiding. Courage is what moves you forward. It's the muscle that makes faith work. Faith by itself can be nothing more than a set of beliefs. Courage is what activates those beliefs. Jonathan hadn't read that, but he was living it. And he decided, what right have these Philistines to control the pass into our promised land? So he turns to his team of one, verse 7. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord, perhaps, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Have you felt like that? Perhaps. Then comes his faith statement. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. There's his conviction. And his armor bearer replies, do all you have in mind. Go ahead. I'm with you, heart and soul. I love this. You see, courage works best in teams, where there's that connection and unity of community. And then it goes on, Jonathan says, come, um, what we'll do is, we'll just reveal ourselves to the enemy. <laughs> Crazy battle plan. And um, if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we'll stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, oh, come on up to us, we'll climb because then we know that God's in it. Interesting. And so that's exactly what they do. Both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. The men of the outpost shouted to them, come on up. And of course, at that point, Jonathan knew that God was in this. Now there's conviction. Now there's a call to base that conviction and courage on. And now he already knows at the bottom of the cliff, God's got this. But he's still got a cliff to climb. And so they climb using hands and feet. And they didn't have any abseiling equipment. It wasn't like that back then. No helmet, no, no, no safety net. They're climbing, and it's not easy, and they're probably breaking fingernails and scraping their knees and bleeding and all the rest of it, but they're committed, they're wholehearted, no matter how tough this is right now. They know that God is with them. And on the top of the cliff, oh, this is the bit. This is the bit. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet, verse 13, with his armor bearer right behind him. Look what happens. The Philistines fell before Jonathan. Now, how many swords did Jonathan have? One. His armor bearer followed and killed behind him. Who had the sword? The armor bearer. 
So these dudes just fell before Jonathan at the top of the cliff. I love it. You know, we climb that cliff and when we get to the top, God's already there. He comes through for us, but we have to do the climbing. And then God sent an earthquake and confusion and panic into the enemy's camp. You see, the boldness of these two men released God to act, released the supernatural. And until those men acted, God couldn't. And I wonder what action, what decision, what boldness God is waiting for from his church, from you and I, in order to unveil the next part of his plan. Courage is the muscle that makes faith work. And then look what happens in verse 23. The Israelites then begin, the ones that were hidden, um, began to come out of their hiding places and join in the army. You see, courage is contagious. You can take people a long way with your courage. What impact could your courageous faith have on the next generation? Erwin McManus said, Courage moves us to risk ourselves for the sake of others or for a higher cause. I love it. Some clues for building a courage culture. You should have actually picked up two already. One is that um, courage works best in community. And the other one is around the weapons that you keep practicing using your weapons so they're ready even in the dark. I just didn't add those on. I thought of them this morning. Um, so the first one here is confront fear. Reinhard Bonnke also passed away said this, Satan wants to make us sick with fear, even of otters. He will create a future for us packed with fears, but they are illusions, mere phantoms. They only have substance if we believe them. And that's why you can get one person terrified of spiders and somebody else not, because somebody knows, I'm not giving any substance to that. It's not true. When somebody else comes into agreement and that thing takes on a life of its own. So if we as followers of Jesus listen to the surround sound chatter in our world that's calling wrong right and right wrong, if we listen to those voices that are threatening those who stand up for Jesus, we will be intimidated. We will be paralyzed into fear and silence. And fear is a spirit, an evil one. It is a spirit. It comes from Satan. God gives us a spirit of power, of love, of a sound mind. In the Amplified, it means calm, well-balanced mind. Don't we need that right now? You know, in my DNA and in yours, God has put the spirit of adventure and call and courage. You might look inside and say, well, where is it? <laughs> It's in your DNA. We need to keep digesting this, believing the word of God, prophetic and spoken, and, and actually standing up on it. And then the, one of the things that I learned is this next one. Start cultivating courage in the smaller things. Like do the stuff that scares you. 
and you'll see your world and your confidence enlarge. How do I know this? Well, because I grew up in a household where, you know, sometimes what fear does, it, it draws lines in the sand. It says you can't cross here, you're not good enough, you're not adequate enough, you're not this, you're not that, and you just got to stay in your lines. I grew up in a, an environment that had a lot of lines around it. Um, and, and I think in the end I realised that a lot of the fears that I took on weren't actually mine. They were, they were inherited fears. They were taught fears. And so I had to learn from, uh, once, especially once I had my own kids, because you don't want to pass those on, that you've got to stand up and start resisting that stuff. And, um, and, and so for me it's been a journey of doing that in all kinds of ways. Um, and, you know, courage is not the absence of fear, it's moving forward in the face of fear. When I then began to take leadership in, in, for God in church roles, I realised I needed to do even more about breaking down those limits around me because I could only take people where my limits finished. And so I realised first the natural, then the spiritual. So I thought, right, I'm going to do stuff that scares me. And so when we took the kids to Dreamworld that first time, I didn't want to do most of those rides, not those scary ones, but I made myself do them. The next time we went to Dreamworld, I thought, oh, I don't have to do them now. I did them last time. I can just enjoy the Gold Coast. And then we drive past Dreamworld to go to our motel, and there's a flipping new ride. The giant drop. I ignored it. We drove back the next day and this thing intimidated me. So I said, right, Holy Spirit, you and I are going to do this ride. And we did. And we survived. <laughs> and there's a number of other crazy things. Um, parapenting off Queenstown Hill tandem parapenting off Queenstown Hill and a few other bits and pieces that I've done just to keep on stretching out my world. First the natural, then the spiritual. Because then what came next was not only was I ministering here in this church, there came invitations from other places and, you know, speaking to pastors and leaders. Whoa, taking a camp. I mean, that's like four sessions of just me. And um, yeah, stuff like that. And I climbed the cliff every time, and as I climbed, there were often tears and fears and <sighs> on the climb. But when I got to the top, God was there, and God did stuff. He's so gracious. He's just waiting for us to do our part, and he'll meet us at the top of that cliff. Your life will expand or shrink in proportion to the measure of courage you cultivate. And then the other day as I was out walking and thinking about the intimidation of my growing lack of courage with the world climate and all the rest of it, God said this to me. He said, you won't find that courage by looking inward. Look up to me. And I thought of that scripture, Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help or courage or healing or provision come from? 
My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You know, Glenn talked last week about the deep centering of our lives in Jesus. And it always comes back to that, doesn't it? No matter the question, Jesus is the answer. And so much of life is this journey of confronting fear and cultivating courage, or at least it, it is for me. And as Glenn said last week, Glenn said a lot of good things last week, the kingdom demands assertiveness from us. It's time to expand, not shrink back. And yes, we'll break some fingernails, we'll skin some knees, sometimes we'll stumble on that cliff face. Because you see, every story of victory has chapters of defeat. The skill is to learn to navigate the losses without blaming God or ourselves and quitting the climb. And what a thrill, as I said before, you get to the top. God is there. He's got this next phase of his plan and we get to be part of it. Seeing a generation inspired by your courage. You know, 14 years ago, I stood in this pulpit and I said, I want those coming behind me, especially my kids and grandkids, to go much further than I have and do great exploits for God. I want the cliffs I've climbed to be normal life for them so they climb more and go a whole lot further and do it while they're young. I said, I want my grandkids to tell themselves, my granddad, whatever it was, and if an old lady can, then I can. <laughs> and now I, 14 years ago, some of them weren't even born, but now I can look and I can see and identify and see what God is doing. Even these, these guys here leading the church now, um, just, it, it happens. If you break out, you'll enable others to break out as well. So you see, God's church is never going to be cancelled. Yes. We've read the end of the book. We start from a place of victory, and together we're going to stand against the intimidating surround sound chatter and confusion and lies of this world. Together we're going to discern his wisdom and courageously stand and represent Jesus and all his love, all his grace, and all his truth to actually a very confused and needy world. Courage is a special kind of knowledge, the knowledge of how to fear what ought to be feared and how not to fear what ought not to be feared. I wonder today, what is your cliff to climb? Or Glenn put it a different way. What did you say? What, is you, what do you need to run at? Same thing, just a different word, different story, same Philistines. Do you need to admit to your addiction and get help? Or is your cliff to climb breaking away from some unhealthy relationships, including social media maybe? Is your cliff to climb getting up again after loss or failure or disappointment or rejection? Is your cliff to climb that resisting intimidation and standing up for Jesus, refusing to be cancelled? And I really felt there were some people here that your cliff to climb is simply this. You know God, but you're resisting. You've got one foot in both camps. 
And today God is calling you to surrender, to give him lordship. You're never going to be happy with one foot in both camps. You're going to be miserable. So do what you know God is calling you to. Stand up in your call. Climb the cliff and enjoy it. And today, if you have not yet got a personal relationship with Jesus, the first cliff for you to climb, and this is an awesome one because when you get to the top, it is to give your life to Jesus, to surrender. That's the starting place of entering the promised land that God has for you and where he'll take you from there. Let's stand up. I'm just going to pray and then the kids are going to come in and and it's all going to, I can't say it's going to let loose because that's not, heaven is going to let loose, okay? Yeah. So Father, we know that you want us to live life to the full and we know that your church, your kingdom, is ever increasing and expanding. And Father, we don't want to drop the ball in our generation. So Father, I'm asking that from the word that's been released here today, there would be an impartation of courage that together Thrive Church, together the church of this nation would rise up with a fresh courage fresh conviction and incredible wisdom and love to navigate what we need to navigate in our time. Father, I pray you'd raise up Jonathans and Davids and Joshuas and Debras and all the rest of it, all the heroes, more of them today, that all saw something in faith ahead of them and reached into it and took others with them. Father, we We want to commit ourselves today to progressing into courage. To not just having a set of beliefs called faith, but of courage that makes faith work. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you want to equip us. You've got everything in heaven and you've given us every good thing that will enable us to be what you're calling us to be in this generation, in this time. We thank you for victory and expansion of your church and the glory of God being seen here in this place, literally seen here in this place, in this church, but out on the streets, in our homes, in our schools. Thank you, Father. Amen.